You're listening to Food for Thought, the OFM podcast, brought to you by Vespa, nature's catalyst for optimizing fat metabolism. All right, and welcome to another Food for Thought, the OFM podcast. I'm your host, Peter Defty, along with our co-host, the lovely Naomi Land from somewhere down there in Australia. Hello, Naomi. Good morning. What's it like there in Tomorrowland? Ah, uh, it is just stunning. Okay, good. You should um, come and visit. I will. I Did you see that thing? I said that, that I saw this factoid that said if I visited a beach a day in Australia that it would take 27 years to see oh, all the wow. beaches. Yeah. So yeah. today, today, you know, we have our lovely guest on again because I lost the recording. Um, <laughs> the, 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 the wonderful Nell Stephenson. Um, say hello, Nell. Hi, Nell. Hello, Peter. Hi, Naomi. Thank you for having me. Such a pleasure to have you today. Now, now, a little, little uh, background here, Naomi. I didn't know if you knew this, but um, Nell is actually married to a palm. Ah, nice. And he's a wonderful guy. I'm just, I just use that word because I, I kind of like joke Does about it everything. So I hope you're not offended and I hope not, Chris won't be a offended Nell. I've never even heard that word before other other than this kind of palm. So I don't even know what it means. A pommy. So P-O-M. Pommy. A pommy? A pommy. Yeah. yeah. Oh boy. <laughs> We're going to have an interesting husband-wife conversation tonight, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. And no in idea Aust- what that means. In Australia, it's palm for short because the Australians like abbreviate everything. Yeah. We okay. shorten everything. Yeah. Okay. It's sort of a, a nicer, I think it's a nicer version of limey. Is oh, that-, that I've heard. Okay. Yeah, there might be a worse version of, of Limey. I don't know. So you'll have to ask Chris. Right, right. Okay, good. All right. So uh, Nell, Nell is is a really um, great guest because her moniker is the Paleoista, and you can find her at paleoista.com. And, and Nell's been in the health and nutrition game for a long time. And so we're going to dive in today with a with a great conversation with Nell about her journey because it's um, one I think our audience can also can also relate to on a personal level, but also one which will give a lot of insights into how um, somebody can tune their body back to that that goal that we have of getting everybody to optimize their fat burning so they can both perform and be healthy and um, live lives. So. Um, Let's kind of get into it, uh, Nell, and um, tell us a little bit about yourself, like right now, and, and you just coming off of a great performance at Vine Man. Thank you. Yes, I started um, really delving into my own eating about, well, I've always been interested in fitness and nutrition, but despite being raised with what anybody would probably view as a healthy diet, I was sick all the time. And it went from being mildly sick as a child to being very, very sick in my early 20s to the point where I was in pain every day, physically so uncomfortable, every GI issue you could imagine. And despite having gone to numerous specialists and ER facilities, nobody was asking what I was eating. And keep in mind, I had already completed at that time my degree in exercise, phys, and nutrition. So I really thought I knew what I was eating well from a a perspective of I was eating a starch-heavy diet, which I thought I needed as an athlete. And I wasn't eating at McDonald's. I wasn't eating a bunch of junk. So I thought, you know, the stuff that I was eating was supposed to be making me feel healthy and vibrant. Well, little did I know it was actually making me really sick. And in particular, I found out through my own research, uh, trial and error, and ultimately 
just being so sick of being sick that I kind of was left to my own devices and I just had to go online and start doing some investigation. But it was due to gluten. The very last uh, specialist I saw did a, t a test for the, immune, the antibody for uh, celiac disease, which came back negative. And his advice was, you don't have celiac disease, so there's no reason why you should cut out foods which contain gluten. And in fact, if you do, you're going to compromise your ability to get enough vi uh, fiber and B vitamins because the best sources are bread and cereal grains. And then he sent me on my huh. way with a prescription for Prozac because there was apparently nothing wrong with me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Naomi, you can relate to that, can't you? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. And wasn't your so, mom into health and healthy eating as well? Yeah. Yes, she was. In fact, that's why it made it even more confusing because when, we, when I talk about eating whole wheat bread, it's not like I was eating supermarket bread that might have all kinds of additives in it. It was actually bread that my mom was baking. Um, she was baking whole wheat bread and that was still making me sick. So because of my own journey, which you know, felt horrendous for so many years, that's why I have a personal um, passion and mission to help educate people on just opening their eyes to what they're eating and, and really understanding it goes beyond what the recommendations of the USDA are. And it goes into you know, being open-minded to realize you can, actually, you, know, you can actually take charge of your health by what you're eating and choosing and knowing what not to eat. It's, it's not, unfortunately, it's not very straightforward, but that's kind of what brought me into this sphere in the first place. And when I mentioned I did some research, um, ultimately I landed on Dr. Cordain's work and I started following the paleo diet myself back in 2004. And that led me to meet him and ultimately for him to become my mentor. And it's been an amazing honor to have him to refer to um, because he really is the creator of the movement as we know it. Yeah. Do I get to be your fat burning net mentor? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, cool. <laughs> no, I'm, I feel honored. So, yeah, so um, you were, tell us about the, those early heady days with Dr. Cordain because you were really on the ground floor of the whole paleo movement. Well, thank you. I, um, I just was lucky enough to have written to him uh, just to say thank you because really his approach and his work changed my life and then it carried on to my clients. At the time, I was primarily working with personal fitness training clients, but inevitably they ask what to eat and you know, learning how to implement healthier choices into their regime, whether they were trying to lose weight or uh, help with reduce symptoms from different types yeah, of health like issues and diseases. So he, he wrote back to me, said he liked my writing style and invited me to be a part of his newsletter. And then we developed an implementation program and later wrote a book together and have been on the Dr. Oz show. And uh, again, he's just, he really deserves so much credit for where, you know, people becoming aware of what it is, because I really don't think without all his work, decades and decades of research, we probably wouldn't know what it was. Yeah, no. And that was a really important, because I remember uh, seeing your name and reading your posts. Um, back when you guys first started publishing online and stuff. And it was, it was really great to see and, and some great information. Um, so, um, Naomi, I believe you had a question. So what was your um, childhood diet like? I was very healthy, actually. Everything was organic. There were no preservatives, no sugar aside from what you might find in fruit. Uh, very balanced, very natural. So, you know, from the outside looking in, it would not have made sense that somebody would be feeling sick all the time which was what made it very puzzling. It would be different if, if somebody was eating a, you know, a highly processed diet or something with red dye or frequenting fast food restaurants, but that wasn't the case. So that's why it was really mysterious. Now, how old were you when you made that diagnosis that gluten was affecting you um, pretty, pretty heavily? Was that when you uh, started working with Dr. Cordain or writing it, reaching out, or was it a little bit before with the doctor you were working with? 
Well, it was before, but none of the doctors I was working with were helpful because they were just doing all these tests and giving me misdiagnoses of IBS. And uh, one doctor thought it was maybe Crohn's and when one doctor said it was a sensitive stomach. Um, I mean, all these random things that just didn't tie down to anything. But but in the end, but it was in the end, you were just a female that needed to be put on Prozac. Yeah, I just made I made it all. <laughs> yeah. Since I was two, I just made it up. Yeah. So I think I think the, the in the context of this, this is um, pretty important that that even on a on a what would seem like a, a very healthy natural diet, there are some things out there like wheat um, that for certain people can trigger. Um, some pretty serious side effects. Absolutely. And, you know, years ago, it, I would have had the position where everybody needs to follow the same eating approach. And I still feel that there are certain commonalities that we would all benefit from eliminating. Perfect example is white sugar. I don't think there's anybody that can argue that there's a reason that you, we should be eating that. Um, and then, you know, beyond that, I think we also need to consider what's practical for people, what's, uh, what can each individual person tolerate. And at the end of the day, even though I do wholeheartedly believe in this approach working for everybody, we also have to factor in what is going to be the best balance for people. And if somebody says they want to follow a mostly paleo-inspired diet, but they sometimes want to have hummus with vegetables, or they sometimes want to have full-fat, uh, grass-fed cream in their coffee, those two things are so much better than some of the other things that people might choose to eat. So I think at the end of the day, it's really all about the balance and just being mindful of your sourcing of proteins and keeping things local, organic, and in season. Yeah, no, and I, I think that that's, that's a very, very good point you make there. Um, so uh, I just want to kind of context this. So you're, you're paleo, and then um, what... Um, what made you make this shift, uh, this nuanced shift from being paleo to being focused more on getting your body to burn more fat? Well, it was purely because all the time that I was racing, um, I was using refined carbohydrate as my fuel. And even though it allowed me to race and perform at a very high level, I just didn't like the principle of the fact that while I was eating a very clean, alkaline, natural diet, when I would race, I was doing exactly the opposite. So. I realized that it wasn't a matter of finding a better source of carbohydrate. It was actually finding a better source of fuel. And that's when I learned about your product um, in an ultra running magazine. And I reached out to you about a year and a half ago because I was just interested in learning more about how that might work. And how did you go with that? Really well. How was that I actually, I actually realized I'd been doing a large part of the protocol before even connecting just in the fact that I had been doing uh, some experimentation independently on some fasted training and had actually gotten to the point of doing long sessions um, without eating first and feeling great, but then I would still recover as though I had been using the gel. So I still was in that old mindset of I need to eat carbohydrate four to one ratio immediately after exercise. So I didn't realize it at the time, and even though I was burning fat, and then I would recover as though I had been burning carbohydrates. So I was kind of setting myself back um, in a way, but at least I was preparing my body for what was to come, even though I didn't know it at the time. And how hard was that journey for you? Not hard at all, because I just, I tuned in so early to how foods make my body feel and how they make me perform. And um, it's very easy for me to test and see what works and what doesn't work. And I think that's a key for a lot of people too, whether we're talking about performance in sport or just day-to-day -day living is really understanding what foods make you feel how. And once that connection is made, it's so much easier for somebody to make those changes 
permanent and last compared to going to a doctor and getting a sheet of paper saying, don't eat these foods, and then walking away thinking they don't understand why they can't eat them, and then what are they supposed to eat instead, which sets you up for something that's not going to last. Well, and I think one of the things about your your journey, now is the fact that you went uh, to sort of a gluten-free approach, and then you found paleo, and then you found the OFM fat-burning approach. So it's sort of like you took it in incremental steps, which really kind of set you up in a real good place to make that final transition to, to get the levels of fat metabolism you need to, to perform at a high level. Because paleo, you really cut out a lot of the really crappy stuff that um, triggers the, the, the insulin response and, and the other you know, metabolic havoc that, that goes on when you, when you eat those things. I mean, really, the only shift that I made was to cut down on fruit and add more uh, more variety of fats. That's really, at the end of the day, what it was. And people have a lot of misconceptions about what does this look like, and they make mistakes, and they think it's about adding a lot of fat to the diet rather than replacing the macronutrients. And obviously, that's not going to work if you're. It doesn't matter what you're eating if you just add a ton of fat and you say you add. 1,200 calories of fat to your diet, it doesn't matter what the other macros are, that's still 1,200 calories in excess. So the, the key is not to just add fat, the key is to look at what your macros look like and make some shifts where you can. So if you're eating a ton of fruit, you know, the one good first step might be to reduce the fruit you're eating. And if you're somebody who, like myself, for a long time was stuck in the, the early 90s mentality of low fat being the way to go, you know, gradually shifting away from being afraid of using fat to adding a little bit more fat. So you can take it in baby steps. It's just a matter of really understanding the point of it and, um, you know, sifting through a lot of the misinformation that's out there. Yeah, no, and I think that that brings up a point we haven't covered yet. You've made pretty much a complete journey because uh, you were vegetarian at one time and even flirted with some of the vegan. I was vegan, diehard vegan for two years. I wouldn't even wear leather or wool, no honey. I mean, I was... Yeah. <laughs> I, I can say for myself, I was an angry vegan. <laughs> I was. So obviously it didn't work for you now? No, I I was kind of doing it because I was trying, I was desperately trying different approaches to eating to see what would help. But also I was uh, very mindful and continue to be of where my protein is coming from. And to be totally honest, about six months into it, I was already beginning to crave fish and I was dreaming about fish and I was waking up feeling guilty. And I realized, this did not happen overnight, but I realized if we take all protein, all, all meat, good meat, bad meat, in other words, if we take the Monsantos of the world with the local grass-fed rancher and we take the farmed fishermen with the, the wild fishermen and we put them all under one category and say all meat is bad, all fish is bad, it's, it's inhumane, it causes the body to become acidic, it's, first of all, it's not accurate. But the other thing is it basically isn't going to do anything to further the, the animal welfare movement because if you're saying that they're all bad, nobody will support the people who are doing the right thing. So it's actually arguably more in favor of supporting animal welfare if you do support the people who are doing it the right way. Yes. That was the, that was the conclusion that I arrived at, which to me feels like the right balance. Well, yeah, and if you look at the, the work of somebody like Temple Grandin and some of the others, you know, they're, they're, can we do better? Absolutely. But, um, you know, we've come a long ways with that. And then I think when you move beyond just the animal ethics uh, factor and look at natural systems that we, we fit in in, a, in, a, in the cycle of life and, and ruminant animals fit in with that cycle of life, and then you take that, and I suggest that everybody look up Alan Savory and the Savory Institute. And if we're talking about the environment and global warming, um, the fact that, 
ruminant animals, large herds of ruminant animals actually play a very key role in this whole cycle of life and the whole carbon cycle. Um, on the surface, the veganism is, is very well intended. I, I don't question anybody's motives there, but I think on the surface, it's, it seems very simplistic. But when you look at how biological systems exist, um, in the real context, it's much more complex. And then things like what Alan Savory's kind of worked out intuitively about how ruminants fit in a whole natural system with predators and with grasslands and with the desertification. I think it's very important um, that, that people take a deeper look and not just what they see on the surface. Right. Couldn't agree more. So um, now calories. Um, I know that you don't count them, but how do you, I know with fat adapted people don't need to eat as much food um, and they're not as hungry. How do you avoid not being too low calorie? And well, I do, I, when I, I do occasionally, I will count and measure because I want to make sure I have, I, I wanted to make sure I learned the protocol properly. So, because if you, if you're learning anything new and you eyeball it, you risk, you run the risk of making mistakes. So I do think it's important to first learn what the different portion sizes look like. So I think um, it, it's just a matter of learning what they look like, eyeballing it, knowing how to factor in your volume of training and your volume of rest and are you fighting a cold? Are you just coming down from a race? All these other things that are going to factor into how hungry you might be and balancing it all in as part of the equation. And how do you work that with your clients? How, how, how is that work, working? Because I'm sure you're having more and more clients that, are, that you're putting on a more fat-adapted approach. Yeah, same, same different um, standards of qualification apply because what you know, a, an overweight man in his 60s who's sedentary is going to eat will be different from a woman who's 50 who is active but recovering from Lyme disease and autoimmune conditions. So a lot of times it's trial and error combined with sometimes there is a functional medicine doctor on board who gets it, which is even better because then we have, you know, more information to add into the mix. So, I mean, that's one of the things that I like with that I do so much about my work is when we're talking just about food, there's no risk. And it's actually really inspiring to see somebody make that connection on their own because, like I said before, that's really what's going to make them stick with it. When their doctor might have said, oh, I suspect you're allergic to gluten, stop eating bread. And they just feel like they somebody else is in control of what they're eating. And and sometimes it doesn't really fit because they just, they're not seeing the big picture and why they need to stop eating this particular food. Um, you know, Nell, um, one of the things I want to point out right now that with the macros that the, the audience uh, gets it is when you're, when you're slim and fit like you are, you really do have to have, count those macros, your fat and your food and make them big. But if you're trying to do weight loss, there's a nuance to it. So you want to count, you still want to have a large macro of fat in what you're eating, but you also want to account for some of that fat coming from your own body fat that you're actually going to be losing if you're looking at a weight loss thing. So the audience needs to get that because a lot of people make the mistake when they go to a, a ketosis or, or fat adapted diet of adding a ton of fat and not, not really looking at the calories. So Nell makes a very good point about making sure you understand how many calories are there to begin with and then becoming intuitive once you get what portion size looks like. Exactly, because, I mean, it's really important to know that calories do count. At the end of the day, how many calories you burnt, how many calories you consumed um, is going to determine are you going to stay the same weight, lose weight, or gain weight. And yes, the source absolutely matters, but to say that calories don't count or you know, catchphrases like eat unlimited fat don't make sense because people will take that out of context. And they do. I've seen it with my own eyes where people think 
I mean, literally eating so much fat that it just, at the end of the day, they're, they're consuming thousands of extra calories from nuts or coconut butter or, you know, different kinds of fat. And that's not, um, and then they'll say, oh, high fat doesn't work, but that's not exactly accurate because they didn't do it properly. Yeah, no, um, that's exactly right. And, and the way I put it is calories count. It's just that when you're fat adapted, calories count in terms of calorie per calorie. When it's carb calories, it's like calories cubed because of that whole fat scorch thing. When you're when you're weight stable, fat adapted, calories in versus calories out is a is a pretty accurate statement. But when you're not fat adapted and say carb addicted, it's calories cubed uh, in versus calories. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Out. That's a really good way to put it. So yeah, um, let's move to the next thing. So um, I think uh, Naomi's a triathlete too. And we want to talk about, you know, putting putting this to the test because, you know, everybody says fat adaptation works and for health and for diabetes and for heart disease, blah, 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 blah. But you can't perform on fat. So how about telling us a little bit more about that? Naomi, why don't you just kind of help Nell lead that conversation as a triathlete? So Nell, um, the OFM faster training, do you do the 12 to 14 hour fast overnight and, and then um, train on an empty stomach? I do. And I found that even though I, I wasn't having, the reason I switched again, I wasn't having GI issues even using the gel. Um, it allowed me to perform at a very high level for a long time. It was just the concept of eating that much sugar day in and day out during the training and the racing. So, uh, yes, I found that it was an, it was an easy shift and it was just, you know, with, with Peter's guidance, learning how to learn how to add some carbohydrate, but not as much. And the way that I say it in a, a very rudimentary manner is just that, the fat as the fuel is the the top fuel, the premium fuel, and the carbohydrate is just like a little extra sprinkling of um, rocket fuel <laughs> to, to add when it's appropriate. Not during the day when you're sitting at your desk. It's not appropriate to have a Coca-Cola, but it might be appropriate to have a Coca-Cola, a sip of a Coca-Cola during the race when you have 10K to go and you just need the sugar. So that's that's kind of the the... The, the point I think that's, that's confusing for people, in fact, I was just having this conversation at a race recently where um, a woman I was talking with said, I can't believe you drink Coca-Cola. And I said, well, I don't regularly drink Coca-Cola, but on the day of the race, when you've trained, trained your body to become fat adapted and you need that little bit of extra carb to perform for that one day, it's far better than if you're relying on carbohydrates to fuel you day in and day out, whether you're an athlete or not. Because unfortunately, I think that's another thing where you might argue that some athletes are even at a more of a disadvantage because they're still being told that we need all these refined carbohydrates where at least at least under the heading of sugar, um, at least people have a, a relative sense as much, even though it's it's a very confusing, but it's a, it's something that everybody really needs to get educated on. And how do you um, how do you work your racing and training with your strategic carbohydrates with um, the OFM banner? Well, usually I'll have some some starch with the meal the night before. Um, for example, some yam or some sweet potato or something like that, or even some banana. And then in the morning I'll have coffee with MCT oil about uh, like an hour before the race. And then I'll have the Vespa protocol is to have one. Different protocol seems like I've I've experienced for our different races. It seems like a little bit different for the seventy point three compared to the full Ironman distance. And um, the other thing that's very noticeable is the increased need for salt because of the increased need for water. So obviously you don't want to replace one without the other. Otherwise you could set yourself up for risk of hyponatremia. 
Yeah, that's a good one. It's amazing. I learned the other day that um, majority of people go into um, the medic tent because they're overhydrated, not underhydrated. And they're and they're underelectrolyted. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. So, um, you just completed Vietnam, right? Vine Man. Yeah. How'd it go? Vine Man in Sonoma, in California. Ah, how, how was yeah. that? How did you feel? It was great. I felt great. I've done that race many times. It was actually the very first half I did um, back in 2000 when I was first racing. And back then the goal was just to finish. So it's always really special to be up there and race. And it's a beautiful course. And you got um, age group win also in Vietnam 70.3 recently. Is that right? Vine Man. Not Vietnam, Vine Man. Oh, Vine Man. Yeah. yeah. Vi- think think Vietnam is rice fields and uh, Vine Man, yeah. is, Vine is, Man is, is grape vineyards. Yeah. vineyards. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. So it was Hawaii and then and um, California. No, no Asia races for me. <laughs> so you've um, qualified for Kona. Is that right? For the Worlds? Not this year. I have I've raced before, but not this year. Okay. Yeah. Um, so tell us about your racing and um, your post-race and the, the way that you eat. Do you keep it clean? Um, do you let yeah. yourself go? Like, do I you don't have want to cheat meals? I'll, no, I don't want them because they don't make me feel well. I actually want, after a race or after a long training session, first I want water, I want salt. I like having cold broth times. Um, I like, I want meat after a long training day. I want a burger and I want that with a lot of veggies and avocado and sun-dried tomato and that type of thing. I don't want a bun. I don't want um, pizza. I want, I just want the foods that my body is craving. And so I eat them and it's, I, I love it. I love it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's put it this way. If you, if you've ever been to a restaurant and you had food poisoning and you kind of have an idea that it was that fish dish that you ordered, you'll probably never go back to the restaurant. And if you do, you won't order that same entree. Well, it's the same thing if you discover a food is making you really, really sick and then you kind of pinpoint it, that becomes very easy to not eat it anymore. And it's not like a, a pity party of, oh, poor me, I can't eat gluten. It's actually, I see it as a gift because I can now choose to not eat that food and feel great as a result. So I think that's really that pivot point of repositioning how you view what you're eating and that's what can allow people to keep with it for the long term as opposed to feeling like their doctor said they couldn't do such and such and they end up feeling like a you know a kid that's been put on restriction yeah that's right yeah so do you um have an off season where you just relax a little bit have a little bit of beer or wine or um not count your macronutrients well, I do. I do enjoy a glass of wine. I do. I love my coffee or you know a neat spirit or something like that. But I don't. Um, I keep it pretty much the same year and year round, just because eating real healthy, clean, whole foods is what makes me feel good. I don't. I don't want to eat stuff that's not going to make me feel good, whether or not I'm training for an event or or it's Christmas time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And how do you fit your Christmas in? Like, does your family eat the same sorts of things as what you do now? Well, my husband and I eat the same way and we, it's really easy. I mean, if you think about it, it's just vegetables and protein and healthy fats. So it's pretty much, it's easy to eat that way. Most of the places you'll go. And even if it's in a situation where you're at somebody else's home, um, I mean, his family eats very healthfully anyway, but you can always find something to make it work. You don't have to feel like you have to eat the pasta. I mean, there's ways around it with, you know, appropriate planning and strategy. Well, I'm sure you've helped uh, Chris's parents in that regard, because I mean, the, the, the British fare day in, day out isn't exactly the healthiest. Well, I, 
I, I don't, I can't comment on that. I can only comment on his family in particular, which actually they, they do eat really healthy. They've got a vegetable garden and, um, had some really lovely meals. So I think maybe, maybe we're, maybe I got lucky. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what about your race day nutrition? Can, can we kind of go over that so people can see it? And I'll, I'll, I'd like to do some commentary to point out some of the interesting things about how we do this with OFM so that people realize it's actually very doable and you get the performance? Sure. So at the Latin, at Vineman, I did the same thing I did at Hanu, which was about six weeks prior. It's wake up in the morning, have coffee with MCT oil. And then right before the race, it's uh, the Vespa Junior. And then um, basically every two hours, it's either a Vespa Junior or a, a, a CV25. And then I, I, I'm kind of just troubleshooting to see how much salt I need. I found for myself with my own sweat rate and my weight and the water that I'm drinking, I seem to do well with one salt tablet every 30 minutes. And then on the bike, I've been playing around with using Tailwind rather than some of the other sports drinks out there because it's just lower calories. Um, but sometimes I just do water and then I add a little bit of carbohydrate at the very end. But it's nice to not have to be relying on gels because previously I was doing, you know, I was using the ratio of four calories per kilogram of body weight per hour. Um, and so even though I was lean and I was racing, I again, it was just the principle of needing that much sugar. And, you know, even if you have some refined sugar or, or you know, sugar is processed as Coca-Cola on race day, if you're not having all that sugar day in and day out during your training, it's a lot less sugar over the course of the year, which is, I think, the goal. Yeah, now these two last two races, Hanu Half and Vineman, did you actually not use gels or just use one or two gels during the race? Um, I did not use a gel in Hanu, and I try, I had one at Vineman, and I, it, was, uh, it felt a little too sweet. So I switched to some swigs of Coca-Cola towards the end of the run. Okay, n- neat. Um, you're really gaining a lot of confidence in this, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, it's just like with anything else. The first time I did the race, um, Hanu, last year, um, again, it wasn't for performance reasons. I was really happy with how I was performing and I was happy with the lean body weight that I had. It was just conceptually, I didn't like the idea that I was using that much sugar. Yeah, and you've won, you won Hanu Half and Vineman this year again, like last year. So pretty consistent performance over the whole spectrum. Yeah. There. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the, one of the commentaries here is even when you do use gel, say if you threw a couple gels in there to have the extra performance or what have you, and, and even with the swigs of Coke, like you said, what's important for the audience to know is in the context of what Nell was putting out calorically to fuel that race level performance, that sugar represented probably, I guess at Vine Manor, Hanu this year is probably less than 10% of your caloric output. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm talking about a couple of mouthfuls during the whole, you know, during the, specifically during the end of the run. Yeah. And with combined with the tailwind, though, we're talking about maybe 10 or 15% of your caloric needs, correct? Yeah. I mean, if that, I would see probably even lower. Yeah. So, so that's what, you know, and that's what a lot of people don't understand is they see you taking a Coke or their gel or you're doing tailwind and say, oh, you're doing sugar. And, and, and I, I see this a lot that a lot of people, see these benefits from going fat adapted and ketosis and then they get terrified of bringing any sugars back for their competitions or their training when when it's appropriate to yeah and I, that's what i agree and i found for myself it's it's so different to have that sugar added in during the race compared to if you 
you know, we're just randomly sitting around eating a banana or, you know, two ripe bananas at your computer. I always use that as an example because it's kind of an extreme. But, I mean, it's very easy to go to Starbucks and grab a banana and have that as a snack. And it's just not a great idea because it's still a lot of sugar when you're just sitting there. Well, yeah, and it really upsets that that natural metabolic balance that we have that, you know, and, and from a paleolithic standpoint, you know, primitive man didn't get up in the morning, grab a, have a bowl of oatmeal, grab a couple gels and go out hunting. You know, he did it. We're mimicking what he did in the in in the day where you got up and and went out um, looking for game, which would be training in a fasted state, and um, this creates the kind of metabolic health and and performance. And then when you add the sugars in on top of it, it's as you know, like rocket fuel, and you really don't need much. Let's go to the next thing, and I think this is the one that you women should really kind of discuss: is is female athletes because so many of the uh, health and fitness gurus out there who are jumping into this whole fat adaptation bandwagon and ketosis bandwagon are males and, and we males tend to pound our chest and sound right and very authoritative. And um, as I always say, um, we really are that simple. You feed us, you, and you put us to bed and, and that's all we need. But with all things female, it's complicated. And, but it is doable. So I'd like you ha have you speak a little bit about um, how doable this approach is for the female endurance athlete. Especially with hormones and, um, you know, menstruation and those sorts of things now. I think one thing to touch upon is, in my opinion, the low-fat trend that we saw for so much of the 90s probably did a lot of disservice to many women in regard to their menstrual cycle. Because if you think about not having enough cholesterol in the body, um, that would wreak havoc on your ability to have a normal menstrual cycle. And I think a lot of women are told when they have an abnormality, especially athletes, it's completely the first the first train of thought is, oh, you're overtraining. Where maybe that is the case, but if there's other markers that aren't present, like if somebody's healthy and they're fit and they're active and they don't have colds and they're sleeping well and they're, they're interested and they're mentally engaged and everything is in order, except they're not in their period, it's not necessarily as cut and dry as saying, oh, you're overtraining. I think diet needs to be looked at. So I think that's one thing is that makes it easier um, to adapt from a hormonal perspective. And the other thing is when your blood sugar is balanced, you're less likely to experience PMS issues and you know energy mood swings and, and just overall have a better emotional state. Uh, so I think for those reasons alone, it makes it more doable because you just feel better. I mean, it goes back to that simple. When you feel better doing something, you want to keep doing it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. And your body's in a natural, um, natural rhythm as well too, isn't yeah. it now? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So what sort of supplements do you take and how do you, how did you work out what to take? And I take fish oil. And then when a client asks what supplement that they should take, I usually recommend fish oil. There's a few exceptions, but anything beyond food, I recommend that they get some blood work done, whether they have a naturopath or a functional medicine doctor or a clinical nutritionist, because for me to randomly tell them to have supplements, I feel is inappropriate because I have no idea whether they need it or not. And it's not safe to assume that just because you're 55 and female, you're going through menopause, therefore you should go to Whole Foods and stock up on yam cream, evening primrose oil and black cohosh, because A, you might not even need it. And B, you could be wreaking havoc on your, your hormone balance because you don't know what's going on. So anytime it goes into that category of supplements, it's you need blood work first. You need, you need to see what's going on first because you could end up hurting yourself and you could also end up wasting a lot of money. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think I think to qualify that though, what I've seen pretty consistently though is vitamin D and magnesium levels just tend to be almost always low unless somebody's actively supplementing. I mean, it's rare for me to see a, an athlete with with vitamin D levels where they need to be for a fat adapted athlete. Um, and this is again thinking from that perspective of what what are the evolutionary pressures that shaped us? Because when you look at at what you get when you're out in the sun, say if I went out in my normal uh, shorts and no clothes on, I'm, I'm exposing a lot of skin. <laughs> yeah, like the way you see me now, right? Well, maybe, yeah. depends. Yeah, right. Well, I'm exposing a lot <laughs> of my body. Yeah, <laughs> come on. So, but, but you can get a 15 to 20,000 IU dose of vitamin D by being in the midday sun for 20 minutes. And most people are under fluorescent lights most of the time, and they're usually covered up and don't have full body exposure, say, the way I'm doing it. Um, and so we're seeing that, that the optimal vitamin, the, the reference range of 30 to 90 is probably not not accurate because I see, I think that anybody below 50 is actually deficient. Um for performance and and I'm not saying people should go and and take vitamin D randomly because you have to be able to uptake vitamin D but the two things I see consistently low are magnesium and vitamin D and they're both intricately intertwined um, because you need to have good magnesium status to be able to, to uptake um, vitamin D and you also have to be fat adapted to be able to uptake, uptake vitamin D because that's where I think based on what I've read in the literature the thinking of vitamin D toxicity has come from is you will get a toxic state and you will deposit calcium into the arteries with too much vitamin D if you can't metabolize the vitamin D, which is a fat uh, lipid based uh, substance. And what's your take on this, the research with regard to magnesium that we don't absorb much of it and we're best off using a topical, topical application? You know, it's that's a very complex thing. I, I do believe in using topicals, whether it's an Epsom salt bath or topical oils. But what I've come to to, to see is is um, magnesium. Most of our diet today is is relatively magnesium poor because even with organic uh, produce and stuff, we just don't get high magnesium levels. Most of us aren't making broth and eating whole animal uh, the way we should, and so. Um, it's tough. If you're doing a lot of seafood, I think you get plenty of magnesium. Your magnesium status is very good because like what a lot of people don't know is, is magnesium salt, uh, like magnesium chloride, which is a common magnesium salt is actually much more plentiful than sodium chloride, which is regular table salt. Um, it, it's so when, if you have a seafood rich diet, um, I think your magnesium status is good, but how many people have a really good seafood diet unless you're say Japanese or Asian living by the sea. So that's that's what I see with the magnesium. And so those are the two things that I would say, you know, you can safely say most people are going to be be fairly low in, but how they get their status up, that's a different story. So, um Nell, tell us about some of your go-to foods. Talk to us. Oh, I just I love uh, produce out of my garden. I have a, this is the first year having a vegetable and herb garden. I love wild salmon. I love grass fed meat. I love, um, I mean, pretty much any vegetable you could imagine. I'm, I like doing different types of preparation, but at the end of the day, when my husband and I are cooking and eating, we just like simple because simple when it's fresh and local is so amazing. Just the taste of a roasted cauliflower with duck fat or a seared, um, 
grass-fed ribeye or something like wild salmon sashimi with seaweed. It's just, they're just so simple and so amazing just in and of themselves. Those are my, I'd say those are my go-tos. Any type of, it, it really just comes down to uh, protein and fat and vegetables and, and sometimes some fruit thrown in there. Sounds delicious. Yeah. yeah. Easy. Yeah. <laughs> Especially when you've just, got your own garden. Yeah. And it, it is just as easy as, um, you know, people talk about not having time to cook it and that type of thing. And they'll talk about preparing a, something out of a box or out of a mix. And in that same period of time, you can chop up a bunch of kale and throw some olive oil and avocado, salt, lemon, and have a raw piece of salmon. And it's far, far, far healthier. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It doesn't take very much at all, does it? No, if you have a gas grill and the basic kitchen, it's like you say, it's actually much easier, much healthier. And, and because you're not hangry because you're not eating crap food um it's much more sustainable and I, I think that that's something we ought to you ought to comment on is the sustainability of this and how easy it is because i think a lot of people think oh that's too difficult yeah it's not difficult and it doesn't it can be expensive but you don't have to make it expensive you can be mindful of pricing and be flexible be creative you know go to the farmer's market and see what's what fish is available where you live that was caught locally and um that was wild caught and it's a far better price than what you might find at the local seafood shop, which has wild ahi, but it was flown in from Fiji. So just kind of being cognizant of how much are you paying for shipping and carbon footprint and that type of thing. And we are spoiled in California. We get so much produce year round, but we can also walk into Whole Foods in December and find blueberries, but they're from Chile. So just really being aware of where you're getting stuff, look, reading labels, asking questions, and you can do this in a very budget conscious manner and you also have to factor in the the old adage that you either pay for eating real food now or you pay for it in far worse consequence later because you're then you have to change your diet after you're already sick and you have to pay at the top of, of medical costs yeah it's quite interesting isn't it i always tell a lot of my clients that um they once they fall sick and then they have to you know the doctor gives them prescriptions for this or that and then they go and get some vitamins and minerals then it actually costs them a lot more than what it would if they just and, 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 then, you know, and then you're in repair mode rather than preventative mode yeah that's right and then you have to repair that as well so um yeah especially antibiotics and, and those sorts of supplements yeah yeah and, and what typically people recommend is a multivitamin and then you know you, with the multivitamins, you're actually working your kidneys over because guess, guess what color your urine gets when you take a multivitamin. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, the bright yellow. So, well, Nell, um, you know, tell us, tell us uh, what other thoughts you might have about this as we kind of wrap this up. Oh, I just think it comes down to really, um, really going back to basics, common sense eating, and it becomes confusing. What does that actually mean? But even if you're somebody who hasn't studied nutrition and has never read anything about it before, if you just think about what, what ran across the land, what swam in the waters, what grew on the land, how many steps did it take from those things to get to your plate, um, that's a really easy way of looking at it. So you, go, you can also look at colors of the rainbow. Ideally, you have all the colors of the rainbow gracing your plate over the course of a day or at least over the course of the week, trying to avoid things in packages, cans, boxes, and mixes. You know, looking at if you are having something that has a label on it, making sure you're reading it and you know that you can identify everything as a food. Uh, so all these things are just little tidbits and some, some things will resonate with people. Other things will resonate with other people. But just really 
coming back to what is food, food is a substance that is supposed to nourish us. And if you're looking at this energy bar in a package with a list of ingredients that look like a chemistry experiment that you don't know what they are, that's just not going to nourish you the way a crisp salad with wild salmon, avocado, blueberries, and olive oil is going to. Yeah. So what about as a holistic lifestyle wrapping up? It's not just about food because I think the exercise is extremely powerful and uh, the lifestyle. I mean, you, you and Chris have done a wonderful job of creating that whole lifestyle that, that's really a part of it. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I didn't understand the question. Well, it, you know, we're talking, focusing on the diet aspect and how easy it yeah. is, but it really is a, a holistic program where it's just a lifestyle. You know, it's not just the diet, but it's how oh, yeah. the, the exercise is tremendously powerful in terms of, of where it puts you health, on a health and metabolic level and, and being able to sustain the diet because when you start exercising and you're fat adapted, you don't eat, um, how it affects your, your relationships and all that. It's actually very easy to do. It doesn't, it hasn't affected, um, it hasn't affected me socially in any way, shape or form. I mean, you just, you eat what you're going to eat. You have great energy levels and you, you create everything to work around what you're doing. You don't ever, there's no situation that I can think of where you, at the end of the day, you're controlling what you're putting in your mouth. So yeah. if, even if you're having dinner at somebody's house or at a restaurant, nobody's forcing you to, to eat the, the nachos with the pretend cheese on it. You know, it's just really connecting. How do you feel? Eat real food, move, sleep, you know, meditate. <laughs> All these things can, can factor in it. And, and don't get too caught up on the idea that you need 90 minutes to go to the gym and do a workout. Sure, that's great. But if you don't have, if you have 30 minutes, you can still get up and go for a walk around the block. Just move. I think people underestimate the importance of just moving. Yeah, and I don't know if you noticed, but uh, we've had uh, this this past weekend, we had some really great performances from some OFM athletes. Jeff Browning uh, uh, got fourth at Hard Rock 100, which is a very, very tough 100. And that was only 19 days after finishing third at Western States. Oh, wow. Yeah, and then then his running mate, uh, Jesse Haynes, who got 10th at... Um, Western States won the uh, the Tahoe Rim Trail hundred, and then the gal who won uh, the Tahoe Rim tra- the female title at the Tahoe Rim hundred. She's fifty three years old, and this is her third Tahoe Rim title, and it's all on the fa- all on the Vespa OFM protocol. Oh, that's awesome! That's incredible. Yeah, yeah. So you know, for people who don't think that that um, you can get performance from fat. I, I, I think we can all agree that this is something people should be open to looking at. We're not going to insist or say, yes, it works, but people should be open to looking at it. Absolutely. Um, so Nell, um, we want to make sure we push you out there and it's, it's Nell at paleoista.com. Yeah. Or the website, paleoista.com. Easy to, easy to see that. Yeah, well, yep, you can you can learn about my, my books, my blog, and then I also have um, recently added something I'm super excited about, which is safe skincare. We you know we talk about sun before, and a lot of the stuff that we're we put this we slather this sunscreen on. We don't even know what we're doing, so you can find out more on my website about that too. Yeah, that that'll be the to- that'll be the topic for a whole nother conversation, yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah. All right, super. Thanks, Naomi, Nell. Anything else? Thanks for um re-recording this session again (laughs) thank you for having me again this has been very fun yeah you can credit me for that (laughs) don't lose this one no all right well thanks again we'll be pushing this out soon